This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Well, welcome back to Policing Matters. Hey, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, uh, we're at a crossroads in policing and so many issues are unfolding. Uh, What are the long-term effects on law enforcement in regards to funding, uh, COVID issues, recruitment, the defunding issues and public perception? What about AI, artificial uh, information and and all those new technology things coming out? Uh, What about less lethal weapons? What about officer safety, morale, leadership, support? Wouldn't it be great if we could get a glimpse into the future? And today's guest is Scott A. Cunningham. Scott is a 38-year police professional with 12 years as chief of police. He holds a PhD in adult education and organizational management. He teaches police officers, students, citizens, and communities on numerous topics, and he's a leader in Kalia. Scott has written a book titled The Future of Policing, 200 Recommendations to Enhance Policing and Community Safety. Welcome to Policing Matters, Scott A. Cunningham. Thank you very much, sir. It is indeed a pleasure to be with you today. Well, it's great talking to you with so much experience, and wow, you're going out on a limb uh, predicting the future of policing. You got about a 50-50 chance of being right or wrong. Uh, You're basing it on probabilities, but sometimes maybe, I I don't know, we just don't get the future. Something unforeseen happens. How'd you go about choosing the 200 issues? How'd you research them? How'd you predict the future? Excellent question, and it's a nervous question. I'll give you that. I wrote the book as I was watching police and society interact, and I was seeing it on the news, and a lot of it was inaccurate. Uh, The public was misinformed and misled, and the news generally was not supportive of policing and all the great acts that our officers do every day. And it is a prediction, but it's not mainly a prediction. It's rather, it's a plan. It's a plan on how we can improve and enhance policing and community safety at the same time. It's really designed to better inform the public and guide the much needed conversations. We have to guide conversations with our police, our citizens, our elected officials. And we have to do that about all the topics and issues so that we can have meaningful, thoughtful conversations instead of a lot of the stuff that's been going on. The issues I chose, I think, are the most critical to policing in society, and I tried to focus on them. To ascertain what they were and what the issues were, I did a lot of research. I looked at trends and issues, incidents, uh, government reports, local reports, uh, news stories, and even the actions of individual officers, agencies, and citizens around the country that all kind of come together inform where we are, where the perception of policing is today. I do believe that policing is the most noble and critical profession in the world, and especially in America. Every society has some type of policing function. And without policing, the the reality is, is there is no enjoyable quality of life. 
policing are essential to a livable community. But unfortunately, recently, we've had a lot of knee-jerk reactions and subsequent law changes and policy changes and things that have impacted how policing is being served right now and how our communities are being served. And that has to be replaced with thoughtful, meaningful conversations that include everyone. We cannot just have the public and a loud vocal minority of the public deciding this is what's going to happen. And unfortunately, we've seen that over the years. Now, the recommendations that are in the book, you, a lot of other professionals, a lot of officers will actually recognize many of them in some form or another, because a lot of agencies actually are doing a lot of these things already, which is a compliment to the profession. People don't give the profession enough credit for being advanced, for looking at things and trying to do things better. I think we have to have those conversations, though, and this hopefully this book will be a guide to the public to inform them, to encourage them to have sit down with your local police, have a conversation. But the reality of it is, is that policing is changing, and I believe it is for the better. Yeah, you make some great points. The The book is titled The Future of Policing, 200 Recommendations to Enhance Policing and Community Safety. And I love the fact that you started with Sir Robert Peel, and you laid the groundwork for, for anybody to read, right? So a, yes. a community member off the street or a advanced a police officer, they know about Robert Peel. Maybe the, maybe the community people don't. So it's a great introduction for both law officers and civilians alike. Uh, how important are the Peelian pr- principles to the rest of the book? I think they're critical. They help set the foundation for the book. Policing doesn't happen in a vacuum. It didn't just all of a sudden, yesterday, this is how policing occurs. It's been the history of policing, not only the history of policing in the United States, but the policing history around the world has helped produce what we see today as American policing. And we're a product of our past, uh, of our present, but it's also a hope for tomorrow. And that's one of the things that Peel does. Uh, We have to look at our past experiences and we have to understand what they are, but we have to put them in context. You can't look at an issue today and say, well, here's another example of what the police did 20 years ago. We have to judge each individual situation based on what happened in that situation. And people will remember, people believe what they do about policing or anything really based on their past experiences. And they look at things through that vision, that eye. Um, that lens, if you will, of past experience. So we have to be aware of it. But as you know, Peel, he created nine principles and those three ideals. And they really are the foundation of policing. And if you, and I know you know them from your experience, you know them and are well versed in them. But a lot of the public isn't. He really, and this was 200 years ago, these principles were created. And they can still guide policing today. Matter of fact, NYPD at their new mega training facility that they have. They have these principles emblazoned on the stairs of the master staircase in the facility. So as you're looking at the staircase or going up, you're reading Peel's principles. Mm -hmm. That's how important these are to society. But we have to understand that these, the past can guide us as far as concepts. And a lot of what they talk, Peel talks about, frankly, is, is this what the police must do? We have to police based on consent. The more we have to use force, the less 
trust and consent we have, Mm. but that the citizens have an obligation to do what they're supposed to do, to follow the law, listen to officer directions. And that is one of the key problems that we meet today. By I think by understanding the role of policing, where we came from, uh, people can have a better understanding of, okay, this is why the police do what they do. This is why we buy certain equipment. Every piece of equipment that a police department has is intended for one specific purpose, and that's to keep our community safe. If it wasn't needed, the police department wouldn't have wasted their money to buy it or to acquire it. It is all geared towards making our community safe. And the public needs to know that there are reasons, there are philosophies. And police departments, most of our police departments have embraced these core foundations. And I think it's good that they look at Peel and remember what he said. Yeah, I mean, you touch on some really significant and key issues about empirical knowledge and sort of anecdotal uh, knowledge that we get from policing every day. But the, the point that really hits home with me is the fact that the community has a part in policing as well and their their obligation to cooperate or comply. And, and that's difficult these days because we are coming off a resist era, right? To resist yes, authority and defund police. And, and we've, we've seen how that uh, played out. Uh, what's the future look like in regards to uh, the pendulum swinging back to more faith in police and, and doing more to fight the crime rise that we're seeing today. I, I think the future is very bright. I think what you're seeing is we had those knee-jerk reactions. People saw some horrible events. And admittedly, you and I looked at some of these events and said, that shouldn't have happened that way. But most of the events that happen out there are police doing the job the way they're trained, the way society expects Frankly, the police are just trying to enforce the law and keep the community safe. And I think what you're seeing is you're seeing it starting to see a shift from that knee-jerk reaction to more calmer minds. And I think part of that is because they've seen that some of the decisions that have been made recently are not good decisions and are hurting society. Yeah, so, you know, you spoke previously about uh, officers doing their job, what they're trained to do. What do we... What are we saying to candidates? Uh, we're always going to have that core of candidates who want to become police officers. But what do we say to those on the fence about um, whether or not they put their toe in the law enforcement career pool? Well, I think, you know, there are tough times ahead. There's no doubt. And I think anybody with any common sense would realize this is a tough profession right now. There's not a lot of public support, supposedly. Supposedly, if you listen to all the news, most people hate the police. But the reality of it is, every year, the Gallup organization puts out a poll. It usually comes out in December. And they ask a wide range of American citizens, what professions do you think are the most integrity laden, the most honest professions? And policing always ranks in the top 10, usually right around sixth or seventh out of about 22 different professions. So when you ask people one-on-one, what do you think about policing? They view them as very honest and integrity laden, but the noise you hear outside is that the police are bad and everything else. And that has a devastating effect. It has an effect on if someone wanted to be a police, a police officer, their family may say, oh, please don't go there. You know, the public hates you. There's so many assaults on police and everything. 
Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that there's, there is a lot of hope. I think this negativity is uh, starting to die. Uh, it's not going to die completely. It will always be there. People don't like to be told what to do. And that's what police do. We tell people you can't park that way. You can't drive that way. You can't take this. You can't hit that person. It's all good stuff. But people just don't like to be told what to do. Right. And so I think what we have to do is just make sure that potential candidates realize the value. And most of them will. We, we, have, we have tremendous officers in our ranks. You know, there's about 750,000 in America. Uh, and some of them shouldn't be there. And, and we've done our part to try and get them out of there because they are still human. But the vast majority of them want to come in there just to serve. And frankly, they really are the ones that are going to do the job tomorrow. And we're seeing, we're starting to see the change. There's an increase in funding coming around. Some of it's setting it back to where it was from the, the misguided decisions that different communities made. Academies are starting to fire up. There's some communities that said, we're not doing any more police academies for the next two years. And now their agencies are suffering severe staffing shortages, which, and people don't realize this, you're not hurting the police department. You're hurting your own community and your neighbors and your loved ones, because now the officers don't exist to answer the calls for service. I think the future is is extremely bright. Um, Our officers themselves symbolize hope. They're the ones that are putting themselves in harm's way. They're the ones that are joining up the police to serve other people. And uh, my wife's not thrilled with this, but frankly, I wish I was in the middle of my career right now because there's, there's just so many opportunities that are going to be coming forward with policing. Um, and I think the future is terrifically bright. I think that we have to encourage our, our citizens, get the accurate information out there. Tell them really what the job entails. And some agencies, they do it with their recruiting information now. Instead of having the run and gun, the SWATs, and all that kind of stuff on their recruiting video, they're having more compassionate, more involved police officers talking with the citizens. And we're starting to attract that type of person that we need in policing. But unfortunately, we're still going to have to, there's still going to be risk. Um, But I think there is a, a huge swing starting to happen. It'll probably take about two to three years, but I think calmer, more reasonable minds are starting to prevail and we're seeing it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and, you know, at Police One, we've done our own surveys and it's incredibly low of how many officers would recommend being police. And we need to change that, right? We need to, everybody's a recruiter. I keep saying that over and over again. Everybody at the agency is a recruiter and, uh, you know, have some faith and, and believe in the person next to you. Um, we're seeing some new strategies, just as you said, and, and it reflects the problems that uh, IACP and PERF both pointed out in their reports on the, the real critical issues in recruitment. Um, so the idea, uh, instead of, you know, SWAT guys jumping out of helicopters, repelling out of helicopters and things like that, you see reflective of the community and and what the surveys say young people say they want to get involved in the communities they want to serve the communities they live in and things like that um in the future are we going to diversify our patrol force are we going to have the classic traditional cop and then community liaisons i think we'll have some of that some agencies do that but I think the best model 
is, is that every officer, like you said, every officer is a recruiter. Every officer is a leader. Every officer is a community-oriented policing officer. Mm. To have one group that just responds to the 911 calls and the calls for service, and another that's kind of doing the warm and fuzzy in the community building and the relationship building, it causes a dichotomy there. And we've seen that in many agencies. Mm -hmm. I think what you're going to see is you're going to see we'll still have specializations for investigative skills and and we will still have a central core of crime prevention practitioners that are with SEPTED and the lighting and everything else. But I think you're going to see more of our officers being well-rounded. You know, we want them to have about 40% non-committed time. And that's so they can go out there and interact with the community. And if the community would start to embrace policing, start to comply with laws, our amount of time that we spend on the criminal aspects would allow would drop and allow us to spend more time on the community building, the community safety, the community interaction side of things, problem-oriented policing, community-oriented policing, actually solving the things that bother our citizens. And I think you're going to see more of our officers having a wider skill set. Um, you're going to de-escalation training is going to continue. The concepts of procedural fairness are going to continue. We've been doing it for years. Sometimes it's just become known to the public. Well, hey, try this new thing. Well, there's agencies that have been doing this for decades, frankly. And the reality is, is we know there's a lot of great agencies out there doing a lot of great stuff. We just got to get the public informed. And as they become more informed about our true capabilities and our true nature, they will start to reinforce people. But we have to be out there and we have to get the community involved. You know, the agency has the, the lead responsibility in recruiting good quality people, but not the sole responsibility. Mm-hmm. Our elected officials need to help. Our communities need to help. Uh, the reality is, is that, and there was just a study I just read about last night that, that basically in an article was saying that more police do have a positive impact on crime and more communities that are challenged by economic challenges have more crime. And if they have more police there that are doing it the right way, then they will have a better quality of life also. So it helps everyone. Yeah. Well, I want to do a deeper dive into what you just talked about, about community support and leadership from our own cities and and state governments. But first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. And I'm back and I'm speaking with Scott A. Cunningham, Chief Cunningham, author of The Future of Policing, 200 Recommendations to Enhance Policing and Community Safety. Well, you talk about politics and elected officials' influence on the current state. Uh, today, our attitudes changing at that level. Um, we've, we've seen the repeal of the foolish defund legislation and budget cuts have electeds changed their attitudes? Any, uh, I know you're, we're going to have the bastions uh, here on the left coast, more ways than one left coast, and even on the right coast. Um, but 
nationally, have you seen uh, a change in what leaders are saying? I've seen a slow change, and it's an excellent question. And it, it, it dovetails right in with the future of policing and how bright it really is in my mind. You know, a couple of years ago, like you said, we saw some knee-jerk reactions, and they were consistent with this minimize and defund movement. Uh, people want to eliminate police or uh, completely re- reduce them. Uh, and these decisions were foolhardy and counterproductive. They caused more crime in society. They caused more harm. Crime has gone up considerably. Uh, most studies now show that it wasn't directly related and solely related to COVID, but it was some of these erroneous decisions that were made. And they reduced services, reduced staffing, uh, had all sorts of bad outcomes. Elected officials, unfortunately, they are very responsive to the current wind that is blowing, if you will. And they made some knee-jerk reactions. They didn't even, historically, when the police department was going to try something or build something, uh, we would go through months of discussions with the public, with, with the elected officials, with councils and everything. But that all changed in the last couple of years. And in a matter of weeks, politicians and elected and appointed officials and legislative bodies, governmental parents, commissions, county, you know, councils, they made snap decisions based on pressure from the public, which was not the majority of the public. You know, a lot of times they'd say, well, everybody in the room in the city council meeting was for this. Well, that city council chambers holds well less than 1% of the population. And they were making snap decisions and never involved the police professionals. And those decisions they made have come back to hurt them. Now they're starting to really see, well, yeah, that's what the noise was. But the reality is, is I've heard our, our number one service delivery. And police are an economic force. Communities and businesses will not thrive if they don't feel safe. A new business will not come to town if they look at the stats and say, this, this community is not safe. So we're a huge economic benefit. And I think elected officials and appointed officials have started to see things. We're we're starting to see some changes. Academies are coming up. Um, Tasks. We're making smarter decisions about what tasks we're doing. And the police are being included. But there's a lot of issues out there. You know, we have to talk about, and and one of the things I think we will, is about better mental health training and response models. We have to have a bigger global conference Uh, and discussion about the use of force and the perceptions of force. And the public has to understand the vast majority of police use of force does not exist, but for the citizen's behavior. Mm -hmm. If the citizen did what they were supposed to, there would be virtually no use of force at all. We're seeing, we have to have more citizen compliance. We have to have a big discussion nationally about the root causes of crime and hopelessness You know, the police have been tasked with doing all these things and never given the proper tools to be able to cure the causes of crime. Mm -hmm. You know, and we're we're still seeing, though, some some bad things. We're seeing some communities try to limit um, police activities, such as uh, vehicle stops for minor uh, infractions. That is bad policy and it is bad practice. These laws were written for safety, to keep our community safety. Having X amount of taillights and having a, a license plate that's current, these are all reasons, there's reasons for it. And everyone wants to say, well, it's bad police that causes these bad outcomes and it causes disparate impact. Well, the reality is, is that there's reasons why, and you have to deep dive into all the information to find out, 
it's not the police officer that are picking on certain groups. Certain groups don't have the funding. Certain groups don't have the, the money to put into a car. And so it, it, maybe it, it has more taillights burned out or it's only running on three wheels, whatever the case is. But there's a good reason that the police stop it. And even those ones that do come out, and this is a big argument. Well, if you wouldn't have those minor traffic stops, you wouldn't have these bad outcomes. That, that's false on so many levels. If the citizen would do what they're supposed to, follow the law and avoid the, the stop in the first place, or when the stop happens, comply with the, what the officer says. Just do what they say. They're not going to hurt you. And I know some people argue, oh, well, I'm afraid they're, they're going to hurt me. Well, why would you do something that gives them the lawful right to hurt you? Just comply with them. Mm-hmm. And that would avoid almost all of it. And, the, you know, instead of telling our officers, don't do what you should do, which is enforce the laws. What we ought to do is tell the citizens, do what you should do, which is comply with the laws and officer directions. And if we were to do that, we would continue to see some changes. I think some of the changes are going to be um, politically based. There's going to be fear of not being able to stay in their position. But elected officials were put there to do the job for the community and make the right decisions. Mm -hmm. But I do think that overall, um, there are changes. I think the, the officials have realized I've got to involve my police professionals because they know. And the reality is, is we've been saying a lot of things. Mental health, we've been saying, do something about it. We are not fully equipped to do this. We want you to do something about it. We want the help. And I think now, because somebody else said the message, that they're starting to listen to us. And I think that's going to help us all. Yeah, I mean, you make great points about dealing with those in mental illness crisis and uh, police being the sole responder. I want to ask you in a minute about are we going to outsource some of our uh, mental health calls for service? But, you know, you also touch upon a really good point about uh, some cities saying, hey, let's not do car stops at all. Well, even one uh, one up from there was recently um, de-escalating to the point of leaving some critical incidents and uh, like packing up all our gear and driving away rather than confront a subject. And I think that's a crazy idea, (laughs) pardon the pun, but I think it's a crazy idea that we have a barricaded suspect. Maybe they're in there alone. Maybe they're with someone else, but we get to a point where uh, we either force our way in or hold siege or retreat. And some agencies are talking about leaving that scene. I think it just sets the next officer responding to that location in just such a horrible position. uh, Jim, I absolutely agree with you. We don't pick and choose what incident we go to. Society, a citizen calling that's concerned, calls us, and we respond to these incidences. And once it goes to that level that you've described, where it's a siege, it really is because somebody's life is in danger. If we were to leave and someone else be killed. Now, the reality is police are going to get sued no matter what we do. If we do A, we're getting sued. If we do B, we're getting sued. Uh, because everybody wants to, to go for money and things. Uh, when the reality is, is that in most cases, it's not the police that started it. We're just trying to quiet it down and keep the community safe. But I think leaving situations is fraught with a lot of danger and challenge because we've already engaged. engaged. We know that this person is non-compliant. We know this person is a risk. And like you said, we don't know who else is in there. We don't know what they've done. But now if we leave and they hurt someone else, 
that's even more on us. And we owe an obligation to the community at large and to our citizens individually, basically, to protect them. And just because someone doesn't like that we have a certain vehicle out there or that we're out there three hours or something doesn't mean that we can leave because the reality of it is, is in most cases we'll be back and it will be more severe and it will cost more injuries to officers and to other people. Once we're there and engaged, we ought to intelligently, and we have been very good. The reality is, is our SWAT teams are, are, are tremendous. You know, the myth that they, every time they come out, they kill someone is, is an absolute erroneous myth. Right. You know, most teams don't ever use their firearms in, in real situations. They talk them out having a, a, a rescue vehicle can intimidate them and say, okay, now they're serious. I'm going to give up. Um, I think it's bad practice. Yeah. So the mental ill, I, I want to respect, respect your time and let's finish up with the mentally ill uh, okay. calls for service. Uh, you know, in some jurisdictions like mine in San Francisco, we went to a lot of calls for service involving people with mental illness and in crisis and sometimes self-medicating with, you know, drugs on board. We're seeing around the country, some agencies, some city uh, efforts to bring in mental health professionals. Are we ever as a profession going to divest from those kinds of calls and just leave it to a a civilian led response to those calls for service? I don't think we will completely divest from it. I think the integrated response model is probably where we're going to go. And I think that officer offers a lot of advantages. Um, the reality is, is we don't know what call we go on has mental health as a, as a facilitating factor. We know that we get a call from a citizen about community disorder or safety. And a lot of times that's drunkenness, that's aggressive panhandling, being aggressive overall, threatening people. Um, sometimes it's just being unsightly and unclean or even being homeless. And people call us about that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there are some other options that can be used, but the police, I don't believe, will ever get out of that response. And I think some of the better programs are the integrated ones where you have a police officer that's very highly trained, a paramedic or, or an EMT at the very least, and a mental health practitioner. And they respond as a team. The reality is, is I doubt that we are going to find enough mental health, certified mental health practitioners, professionals that are going to go out on their own into the real world, into an acute crisis, and try to deal with the situation on the street by themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may find one or two here and there, but as a group to resolve the issues, you're not going to find enough of them. Plus, there are medical concerns. And having this integrated team allows that group to go out there. Let the mental health professional take the lead. I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. But I think that they have to have that support from a medical provider, because a lot of it is they're suffering from medical illnesses. They're not taking their own medicine. They're, they're, they're physically ill, mentally ill, and sometimes based on medications are, are needed. And sometimes they're hostile. Now, granted, some people will argue, well, the uniform makes them more hostile and all this. Um, that doesn't work in the vast majority of cases. Most people don't all of a sudden get hostile when they see a police officer. There's, millions of citizen interactions every day that go very, very well, and only a very small, small fraction that go badly. I think the integrated model is where you're going to be. 
I think that it's important. Um, officers have been trained in de-escalation and verbalization and crisis intervention training for years now, decades now. I advocate that every officer ought to be CIT trained because any additional skill they get to help understand or to, to calm someone down can be good, even if the person doesn't have a mental health problem per se, but they're just in an acute crisis for some reason. Mm-hmm. So the officers can have those skills and help. They can also be there to help the mental health professional professional be safe. Someone's not going to do a job if they don't think it's safe. And we've already seen examples where they've had a mental health practitioner respond and they've been hurt. And then the police have to be called in to resolve it afterwards. Having an integrated team, I think, is the best way. Um, but society's got to make some critical decisions here. Just having this response team is not going to be enough. Society has to decide that we're going to put some funding into this. We're going to put some funding into people to do this and training into it, but also into facilities and other things to help those that are suffering from chronic or even acute mental health issues. Um, Because just having someone come out and respond, even in a group or a mental health provider, is just not going to resolve it. But what we want to do is resolve it without involving the criminal justice system. And I think the integrated response will work well. And there's a lot of agencies, you know, Tulsa does a, a fantastic job. There's a lot of agencies out there that really do a good job of these integrated models. And they're, they're a start. But you also can't take, well, the police department handles, you know, 10 calls a day. So we're going to, that equates to one officer. So we're taking an officer funding away and putting it over here because right. that's not how our deployment works. Right. You know, you, you have to, that, that's one call that that officer handled. But he still has to handle that zone and that beat and all the other calls there. So the, the public's going to have to put some money up. They basically got by on the cheap for many, many decades since they closed all the facilities. And now it's time to, to pay up and do a better job of, of serving our citizens that have challenges. Yeah. All great facts, all great uh, information there. And I appreciate you, Chief Scott A. Cunningham, for what you're doing, your book, uh, The 200, The Future of Policing, 200 Recommendations to Enhance Policing and Community Safety. I mean, you are trumpeting, you're putting out the word, we need more people like you to turn the ship around, educate the public, and support our law enforcement officers. Thanks so much for the book and what you're doing. Thank you very much for having me and listening to me and, and, and for getting the word out to our amazing officers out there and our citizens that really want to live in a safe community. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, I appreciate it. Hey, uh, thanks for listening. Our listeners are our best asset, and we appreciate what your feedback tells us about who you want to hear from and the topics you want to hear about. And hope you enjoyed today's podcast with Chief Scott A. Cunningham and his book on the future. Get it. Take a look. uh, Really good stuff in there. All right. Stay safe, and we'll be talking to you real soon. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 